As our occasional and intermittent look at James trudges slowly onward, we are approaching the end of chapter 4. There is hope in sight, only one more chapter after this. But tonight we'll be focusing on chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, but it's important to get the context as was read. And as it is the second Sunday of this new year, it's still appropriate for us to discuss new things. One of the trendy phenomena of recent decades has been the creation of new words. Even established dictionaries and authorities, such as the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the Cambridge Dictionary, and even the official Scrabble Dictionary, often add new words. And in case you're wondering, and next time you're playing Scrabble, V-A-X, Vax, is now an official word. That could be helpful someday. These changes might make you laugh, they might make you cry. But what I find more interesting is when people change existing words into updated or trendy forms. Now, you may not be aware, but a contemporary take on our passage tonight, especially verses 11 and 12, could be expressed by the fairly recent term of judgy. Yes, I remember the first time I ever heard this, and I had to stop and think about what they were saying, and in the context, I got it. But it's when you take a noun or an adjective and you make it a verbal form, judgy. Merriam-Webster defines it as tending to judge others harshly or critically, judgmental. I almost entitled this sermon, Why So Judgy, but decided against it at the last minute. So why a new word about judgment and judging others in our place in history? Why would our contemporary culture be dealing with this matter in such a way that a new expression of an existing word be formed? Well, I think the answer can be found in our scriptural text this, morning, this evening that was read, that James is writing to these first century Christians and hits on one of the tendencies of the human heart that is present in every period in history. This tendency that every human heart, on one hand, that is to look down on others, to judge others, to look at ourselves as superior and better than others. And, on the other hand, in our heightened individualistic age, a desire to not have anyone speak into my life, into, to counter my opinions, to challenge my beliefs and my firmly held convictions. Any differing opinion, even when confronted with scriptural truths, can be deemed by some to be judgy. Into our world, James writes these words, pointing us to the better work of Jesus Christ. Now, I think it's helpful to go back and look at where this has come from in this book. Now, if you've read James before and you've studied it, you will notice his particular style of writing. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as we have gone through this, you may have seen it yourself, where James will often introduce a topic or a subject or a matter and then he'll go off a little bit and go on this kind of theological discourse or throw in an illustration or a sanctified bunny trail. And then he'll come back to his original thought sometime later in the letter. Sometimes he will introduce a concept and explain it later. He doesn't deal with a topic all at once. It's kind of the opposite of Romans where Paul goes point by point by point and anticipates everything in a logical, coherent argument. James, however, will introduce something, discuss it, go over here, come back, and it all ties together 
at the end. And I think that's helpful for us because sometimes we can read James and say, why is that there? Even these two verses that we're focusing on tonight, verses 11 and 12, can seem a little off topic. But just like the book of Proverbs, which will often take theological truths, and in certain sections of Proverbs, will expound on that particular theme for a while, but then it will appear later in the Proverbs. James, the closest New Testament that we have to Old Testament wisdom, does the same thing. It's connected. It's interrelated. Various themes sprinkled throughout this very short book. So I want to show where this process has been, where he has mentioned this before to show this thread running throughout the entire letter. So turn back, if you will, to James chapter 1 and look at verse 13. James 1.13, where he's addressing those who would actually make accusation and judge God when one says, let no one say, God is tempting me, because we naturally, at some point in our life, want to blame God for things. He says that's not possible because God cannot tempt, be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt anyone. In chapter 2, verse 8 to 13, if you turn there, he'll bring it up again. He'll highlight this theme. In verse 8, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So speak and so act, in verse 12, as those who are under the law of liberty. And he concludes in verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. And this theme of the royal law, to love your neighbor as yourself, is key to our understanding of understanding verses 11 and 12 in chapter 4. In fact, the whole of chapter 2 then will discuss how our actions and our confession must go together as we live out this royal law. To love my neighbor as much as I care for myself. How one can say they have faith, but does their conduct match this? In chapter 3, we spent some time looking at this, the very challenging part of our words. Are we loving our neighbor with how we communicate with our mouth, with our our words? Because the tongue is an unruly evil, a fire that consumes if it is not tempered with the work of Jesus Christ. In the first part of chapter 4, James shows yet again that the quarrels and the fights that we have is not because of something outside of us, It is not the people in our lives that we have to deal with, but because of my own selfish, self-centered, and sometimes maybe even good desires that are at the center and become the controlling interest in my life. So as he concludes this chapter, as he writes in these two verses, there is a return, a restating, a conclusion, if you will, of some of the important spiritual truths that he has been bringing up again and again and again, in case we missed it. So tonight, as we look at these two verses, there are three questions to guide our consideration. First, why should I not sit in a position of judgment? Number two, how can I do positive judgment? Is that possible? How can I love my neighbor, and how do I speak to them? And number three, What happens when I pronounce my judgment on my neighbor? 
what is really so wrong with it? Why would he take time to discuss this? So again, why should I not sit in judgment? How can I do positive judgment? And what happens when I pronounce my judgment on my neighbor? The why not, the how, and the what. Okay, so first of all, the why not. Why should I not sit in the position of judgment? Well, look at verse 11 again. Reading between the lines when James writes this, we can see that this is actually happening. When he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The fact that he had to address it means that it was happening. Now, what does this mean? There are different ways to talk about this, but one of the things we need to say, first of all, is that this is in the context of using the term brother, one of his favorite terms, brothers and sisters, those in the household of faith. This is happening among Christians. Now, I'd like to say that maybe things have changed over the last two millennia and that we don't have this problem anymore here at 10th, but I don't think we can be that fortunate because this is something that we all deal with in every period of history. So what does James mean, though? When he says this, the phrase can be translated here as it is in the ESV as speak evil. It could also be translated as looking down on. And in chapter 2, again, to call you back, he already discussed how it is not proper for us to make distinctions among people based on external appearances. Hence, we cannot look down on others with our words as well. Other versions have do not speak against Whatever the, uh, the culmination of those is to basically say that James is saying, you are not loving your neighbor as yourself, as you judge them, as you have this attitude towards them. And really what this is, is the embodiment of human wisdom. They are looking at externals only and not looking at their fellow brothers and sisters through the work of Jesus Christ. We can see this from the context of the preceding verses. See, when I judge my brother or my sister by my standards, I am not submitting to God's law. Look at verse 7 that we read earlier. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And similarly in verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Then immediately he turns to verse 11 where he shows that the wisdom of God cannot grow and thrive in a proud, self-sufficient heart. Look again at verse 11. It's how he demonstrates what it's like to ignore the royal law of loving my neighbor as myself. Again, do not speak evil against each other, one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Notice the progression that this self-centered, non-submissive to God judging takes. First of all, it's speaking evil. It's a criticism of some form of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Next, secondly, we speak evil against the law because we try to make our standards God's standards. When we do this, we are essentially saying that God's moral law to love him and to love my neighbor is not sufficient, that I need to step in and have them do things my way. Thus, my standard and myself actually becomes the standard and in the place of the law. Third, James takes this progression to its logical conclusion. 
that if we act in this way, I am no longer under the law, but I am the law, equal to the law, making judgment and pronouncement on others, setting myself up as an authority. You see, the motives of the human heart are exposed in judging and speaking evil of our fellow Christians. Either, here are the two choices that we have. Either we see ourselves as fellow humble followers of Jesus, or we see ourselves in a place of authority, looking down on others and not loving them. So if we are not to speak evil and stand in judgment, there are some passages in the Bible that speak positively about entering each other's lives. So why should I not sit in judgment? Because it is not my place to become the law. So secondly, how then are we supposed to interact with each other? Is there a way to do, quote, what I'm calling positive judgment? Or to put it positively, how can I love my neighbor as we interact in my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ with each other? You see, there is a place for speaking truth into each other's lives. Now, back to the rise of the word judgy in our contemporary culture, this new word. I think it's really interesting to look at this in light of what James says here in these two verses. It's not an accident to me that the rise of this word has coincided with what's known as cancel culture present in our present American culture. If you're unfamiliar with this term, it it is an utter rejection, a cutting off of someone for a past mistake or offense, even if it truly is an offense. And this judgment, this cutting off, this dismissing and canceling is done by a bunch of people who decide that this is wrong, who, if it were to be examined, probably have some things in their own past that would be equally cause for being canceled. So cancel culture taken to its logical conclusion is the embodiment of what James is condemning here. If one is canceled, there is no chance of forgiveness, of mercy, or allowance for repentance. It is condemning them in every conceivable way, the very thing that James says should not be present in Christian circles. So what James desires of the Christian community of faith then and now is a call to humbly receive God's grace and mercy and be different from the current culture. The Bible often uses the phrase to shine like stars in a dark world. That as we live out of the power of the Holy Spirit, we obey God's laws and encourage others to do so. This is not judging. And this is worth repeating. An expectation of obeying God's moral law for those who call themselves Christians is not a matter of judging someone, but it's a matter of obedience of the Christian life. The church is designed to be a place where we can daily, weekly, ongoingly encourage one another to love and good deeds and to put off the deeds of darkness. I've had several pointed conversation with, conversations with individuals in recent weeks where there is a confusion about this. That when they are called to obey God's moral law, they think it is bordering on being judgmental or being legalistic. But if we cannot speak into each other's lives about God's expectations, how are we to do this in the proper way? Well, if you will, turn over to the concluding words of James in this letter. Chapter 5, verse 19. 
Now, this is a sermon in and of itself for another day, but I think it's really helpful to see where he's concluding this idea of judgment and passing judgment. It's not in the sense of standing over people and looking down on them and calling them to be up where I think they should be, but rather it's coming alongside of them in love, in this royal law, and having these conversations, these interpersonal relationships that give spiritual life and freedom. Because it's no longer about me, but about what God is doing. Look at James chapter 5, verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wonderings will save his soul from death and recover a multitude of sins. Now, I'm just picturing this in my mind and thinking about how this turning back, this kind of going after the brother who's wondering or the sister who's doing something wrong, there has to be at some point a confrontation of the truth. Now, we should follow these words of James not to speak evil or standing in pronouncement of judgment, but we're also commanded to come alongside of each other and to do this as fellow struggling sinners. You see, the difference between the two, between judging and what James portrays here in chapter 5 of bringing back this wandering sinner, is if I either put myself as the enforcer and interpreter of the law, or if I humbly submit myself to God's commands, so that by his spirit, I can humble myself to be used by him. And what's interesting is that this is not just James. This is a repeated theme in this particular section of the Bible, what are called the general epistles, these letters that were sent out not to specific churches, like when Paul writes the the letter to the Romans, it's specifically to Rome, but then to be passed on to other churches, or Philippi with the letter to Philippians and then passed on to other churches. These are for the general audience of the churches. And it's interesting that each of these authors hits this same thing. This idea that corporately, as a church, we need to be speaking the truth into each other's lives on a regular basis, to have a humble community that is in touch with each other so that we can have conversations about, how are you doing? How's it going? In real life ways, so that we don't wonder from the truth. Consider the book of Hebrews. In chapter 10, this book that was written, again, to uh, various churches, explaining the work of Christ for 10 chapters and showing how Christ is greater and better than everything in the Old Testament. He succinctly, the writer succinctly summarizes the practical commands of the practical chapters of verses 11 to 13 with this phrase, let brotherly love continue. You see, the work of Christ came to deal with sin. So live like it. And he also says in chapter 10 that we should stir one another up to love and good deeds, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together so that we can get into the nitty-gritty of each other's lives to point us to Christ humbly, not judgmentally. John puts it this way in his first letter, in chapter 2, verse 2. He says that Jesus is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, that we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
But whoever keeps his word, in whom, in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Obedience is a sign that we are following Christ. And we are to come into each other's lives when that is not happening. Peter puts it this way in chapter 5 of his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, that he calls the elders to lead in such a way that reflects that they are not over the people, they are not lording it over them, but they are struggling sinners in the context of the church. Here's what he says, that the leaders, the elders, should not be serving under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, dare I say judgy, but being examples to the flock. Then in verse 5, he says, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, and this should sound familiar because it's exactly what James says. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So if all of these writers in these general epistles all hit on this theme, don't you think it's important for the churches to consider this? So I would need to ask, what would it look like if if 10th Presbyterian Church would follow these life-giving commands? What if we did not speak evil of each other or look down on each other? but humbly point each other to the work of Jesus on our behalf to bring each other back from our error and self-centered desires. And James has one more thing for us to consider in these verses. We've heard James's call to not speak evil and judge each other. We've also heard that there's a challenge to humbly and there's a godly way for us to interact with each other, to bring the truths of Scripture without being judgmental, but desiring to show that we are fellow struggling sinners along the way. Third and finally, what happens when I pronounce judgment on my neighbor? Look at verse 12 of James chapter 4. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James is telling us that when I speak against my brother in Christ in a non-loving way, I attempt to do what only Jesus can do. He who makes true pronouncements and judges our hearts and our motives. James concludes with a very striking rhetorical question. Who are you to judge your neighbor? You should not and you cannot because it is above your pay grade. It is above your natural ability. You cannot do it. I cannot do it. You see, true and right judgment is reserved for Jesus Christ alone because he alone can pronounce guilt as well as acquittal. I like how in John's gospel, how he puts this. Two seemingly simple statements that probe the depths of this. When he says this, first of all, in John chapter 9, verse 39, after healing a blind man, Jesus says this, For judgment, I came into the world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. So Jesus in one way comes into the world to exact judgment, the true judge. But then on the other hand, 
we have John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So how do we reconcile these two things? He came into the world to judge, but he didn't come into the world to condemn. What's going on here? Well, I think to understand this, we need to look before us at the table and the elements before us, the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper. By his death on the cross, he took on himself our iniquities, our rebellion, bore the wrath of the Father that we deserved. And in return, when we look to him by faith, we have now been declared not guilty. So how can then, in light of James 4, we are to judge our neighbor with our own feeble standards. Christ has done it. Perhaps we need to pause and reflect on what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, especially in light of James chapter 4. Words that we may have heard many times before and are often said as we partake of the Lord's Supper, that we are told not to approach this table in an unworthy manner, nor are we to judge our brother or sister, but rather, who are we to judge? Ourselves. Look at what Paul says. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Let each person judge himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning, understanding, judging the body of Christ, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we had judged ourselves truly, what James calls us to do, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is the ultimate judgment that truly counts. There will be a judgment for all because all have sinned. However, if you have been spiritually born again by the Holy Spirit, he took the judgment and the punishment Jesus did on the cross so that you and I can be declared not guilty. To put this in the language of James 4, if I refuse to humble my heart, God will not draw near. But if we humble ourselves, if we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. And we can only have our sinful hands and hearts purified by the redemption of Jesus Christ as we humbly receive the implanted word of the truth by faith, which alone is able to save anyone's soul. So will you accept this promise by faith in the true judge? Will you now boldly declare that by faith in Christ that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Let's pray. Our great God, by the pardoning work of your Son, who has declared us not guilty in your sight, we pray that you would enable us to entrust our hearts to you. We long for the day when you will come and gather your people, not as judge, but as our Savior and our Redeemer, and when we will praise and worship you forever and ever and love every minute of it. We give you thanks by your life-giving spirit. Amen.